everyone, and welcome to the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Seske. As you know, season two of the show has revolved around the investor's perspective. And today we're fortunate to be joined by the founder of the Caribbean Diaspora Angel Investor Network, as well as the Guyana Economic Development Trust, Asleen Carrington. Asleen, thanks so much for being here. Andrew, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to chat with you. So our listeners may have noticed that these past few episodes have slightly deviated into more unique private investors, including Kurt at ClearCo, who just announced today a $250 million investment from SoftBank for non-dilutive capital deployment, or Aman at Practical with his approach into the secondary market of buying LP interests. Today, it may not surprise you that we're focusing on Osleen's incredible approach at broadening the pool of investors in the private markets. Well, maybe even the most unique aspect of this podcast is that for the last few episodes, my favorite question, what do you feel is underestimated in the world, has actually been unanimously human capital. Today, we get to learn from someone doing herself from a formal standpoint of supply and demand economics with a comprehensive understanding of risk. So that's my personal pitch for this podcast. And Asleen, I'm excited for you to take the show basically from here. But maybe first and foremost, could you give us a little background about both of your founding experiences and where your passion and identifying the opportunities for these firms came from? Sure. Again, Andrew, thank you for having me. And I'm really excited to share my journey, but also the opportunities that lie ahead with your audience. So first and foremost, I have a sort of, as many people today coming into this arena of investing do, you know, I have non-traditional background. So first of all, I am an immigrant. I came from Guyana, so hence my focus. And I came here in the very early 70s on Christmas Day, and immediately I was unhappy because it was winter. But since then, I've, I've gone to school here. I've grown up both in the professional sense and personal sense here in the U.S., but with a very, very strong tie back home. I mentioned this because it's relevant to both startups. So, and this, these aren't my first startups. So I'm a sort of serial startupper, if you will, or a starter-upper. My very first startup was at 22, 23, right out of B-School. I ran a really fun firm for about four or five years. And unsurprisingly, at that age and in that time, that was the early 90s, it didn't survive. But I learned a lot and I still use the lessons from that experience in the two businesses, or it's actually more than two, but in the businesses that I have the privilege of running today. But since my very first startup experience, I have run startups or or initiated programs within the various companies that I've worked for. And that's where my sort of, I'm going to call it a lust really for creating things. I, I see myself as a creator and an operator more so than a professional investor or, you know, deep, finance person. I'm an, I'm a creator. And so I, and I also like solving problems. So with that, those ways of thinking and being, I've been able to launch and create a lot of things again, in the different companies I've worked for. How does that sort of bring me to where I am today? So more, most recently I was working as an administrator in academia and I'm here in New York and many of my friends, colleagues, obviously family are from the Caribbean. I happen to be at home in Guyana at one point visiting about five years ago and was at the university there where I have friends and saw some really amazing things happening in terms of innovation. Like a lot of universities, they have these annual presentations of students, uh, research conferences. 
And there was a research conference happening at the time I was there. And I saw some amazing ideas. And, you know, I went around to everyone and they were they had things happening in different rooms and different presentations. And I went to one of the administrators and I said, so like, what happens with all this stuff? And they go and they were like, what do you mean? <laughs> what happens is what's happening now. The, you know, folks do presentations. And I'm like, well, what happens with the ideas? And obviously, like in a lot of academic settings, the ideas remain research, they go in a drawer or whatever. And immediately, because I have this experience of the combination of commercialization and attracting capital to startup ideas, because I was in academia but prior to launching these businesses, I had experience doing that, startup programs and finding funding for them and, and commercial, like, you know, relationships with the private sector and with the, the academic environment and staff and so forth. And so it just clicked for me very easily to create something. And so what was born from that is something called the Guyana Innovation Prize, which is like, you know, an MIT prize or any of these other university-based prizes where I go find money. I find capital either initially as donations. We started out and in, in many ways still are a philanthropic endeavor and find capital and match those up with great ideas. And so annually we have a competition and it is the funding is awarded to the best commercializable ideas. We've been doing this now for four years and have eight, I'll call them portfolio companies, two of which are now launched in the US. And so that brought me to the second business idea, which is the Caribbean Diaspora Angel Investor Network or CDANE because you know, again, we would find the funding. We have corporate sponsors now and, you know, a USAID government grant. But point is now we're able to take these ideas and find other, go to the next stage. So you could sort of say that the initial support is pre-seed and that what we then do is, you know, you could sort of categorize pre-seed in stages. Maybe there's a pre-seed a and a pre-seed B round or whatever you want to call it. I mean, we can pretty much make up anything we want in this space because it is still pretty much angel. And so now through the network, we're able to bring those products along further and get them ready for or actually get them invested in. So that's what we do. So let's talk a little bit more about the formal education that brought you into understanding some of the ideas that were worth commercializing and also the fact that this network is really a great opportunity to source investments, especially from ideas that are dis so disconnected to capital, there may not be fledgling entrepreneurs who even know where to begin to look. So you said just before we started recording that we we need to take sort of a formal economic approach in not just in supply and demand, but also risk. Uh, right. When you were thinking about, I know that entrepreneurs have sort of a an odd perspective when it comes to their own personal risk aversion assessments. But for from the investment standpoint, when you're going out and creating a network like Cdane, how did you get started, and where did that opportunity present itself to you? So there's a couple things that that you're asking here, and I'll answer the very first, which is your last question: is you know how did the opportunities present? So you know. When we were, remember when we were kids, you know, people would say, oh, like looks sticks to like, right? Nowadays it's called pattern matching. But I have a lot of friends who are just like me. We are from someplace else. Our parents valued, or we're from here. 
and our parents valued education. We were fairly high achieving, what have you. And so everybody I know is just like me or like my husband or like my friends or my family members. And so because we're all the same, we would talk about the same, not the same, but similar. We would talk about the same issues and we would have a different perspective on the quote unquote problems that people were lamenting. So, you know, folks would say, you know, startups have a hard time attracting capital. I'm like, well, imagine if you're a startup in another country if, oh, and you've got a fantastic idea or you're a startup that is non-traditional in some way. And so while the market is sort of leaning towards this now, this isn't a new concept. And in fact, the way that it's been dealt with in many communities, particularly those that have a sort of African basis, uh, whether it's Latin American or whatever, is a concept called the SUSU. And a SUSU basically is where communities of people who all know each other, by the way, the SUSU is what's behind microfinance or the initial one that we were introduced to in the US by, I forget the name of the organization, but I guess the gentleman is from Bangladesh, but the point, I think, but the point is, is that a SUSU is where a group of people in the community get together, they pool their money, and that money goes to one person's need. And it's a circle. So if you've got 12 people in the circle and the SUSU goes around once a month, then everyone's contributing. And you know, at least once a year, you're going to get the pot and you take that pot and you start a business or you take that pot and you buy a house or you take that pot and you pay for your child's education. And so I didn't decide that I wanted to use the SUSU model because that's not what we're doing. But the idea of community coming together to find opportunities and that we're all familiar with or that we can connect to in some way because it's either from places that we know or it's addressing problems that we know happens, quote unquote, back home, then that's kind of how it all came together. So, and to your question about risk, I mean, we don't see these things as risky because we know what the challenges are. We know what the needs are. And what I was saying prior to the show starting is, is that it's amazing what people consider risky. Like I would never put my money, for example, in penny stocks. I would never put my money in yet another IoT solution when most people in America and in the world are not living in quote unquote smart homes. Like I would never do that. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that stuff isn't smart. I'm not saying that it's bad, you know, investing to do that. I'm just saying there's so many other problems in the world that are fundamental. And there are a lot of smart people in other places that have solutions for these problems. And if the capital met up with that, there'd be a lot of very, very wealthy people. And it's the basis of that that I said, well, why not us? Why couldn't it be us who were not only pooling our money to solve the problems, but potentially experiencing a wealth boom? <laughs> oh my gosh, Ozlin, that's amazing. I think that for our listeners that have you know, stayed with me through the number of shows, I always say, you should just pause right there and click that back 30 second button a few times until you get to re repeat and re-listen to the last comments you made, because they're really important. When people think about risk in general, especially in the private markets, it's really interesting to see what individuals consider risky. And I think what, if I'm hearing you correctly, risk is more about mitigating increased numbers of factors based on what you know personally, right? right. The number of right. unknowns versus the actual perception of risk. So 
you know, accounting right, for right. all of those variables that you actually can understand. And you're saying that a lot of that is network-based because you have a particular understanding of the area and what the economics look like in a specific region and what those entrepreneurs are trying to solve for and the gravity of the opportunity. That's right. And I would add to that, that that doesn't have to be the case, meaning I know about my particular area of the world and the sector, which happens to be ag tech, agro-processing, and ag science, right? Because the part of the world we're talking about is heavy, heavily agricultural, but so are a lot of other places in the world. And so we feel like we're not just solving for a country or a few countries in this region. We're talking about any place in the world that's heavily agricultural and tropical. Well, guess what? That's the vast majority of the world, right? Southeast Asia, Southern Africa, excuse me, the Caribbean. The southern half of the world is as, as, as populated as the northern par- part of the world. And the southern part of the world is tropical. So, you know, we're talking about half of the 7 billion people in the world and solving for them. So this isn't risky. We're not talking about that, you know, kind of, is somebody going to buy this IoT solution versus this other one? Is somebody going to buy this electric car versus the other one? Like that is real risk. Solving for problems that affect billions of people is not risk. So one of the things that's been really interesting to watch has been some of the loosening of accreditation standards. I actually think the first time that we ever spoke was on a Saturday morning about some SEC laws because it probably says enough about our personalities. But when the SEC is considering broadening accreditation standards and actually has, and you see records amount of money flowing into crowdfunded projects or angel investments hitting record levels, what do you think are some of the differentiators for CDANE and what role does technology play in your mind in in your platform? We probably sit in the middle. Well, first of all, let me back up. You know, I have enough knowledge and experience to know that there are spaces that we can't and don't want to play in, that we don't want to operate in. And I also know, again, talking about the community that we I wouldn't say serve, but the community that makes up CDANE that we hope to add to in terms of what CDANE is, the risk aversion is a different kind. It has to do with trust and it's not about data. So, you know, how do you bring data to the picture to establish a level of trust, right? So the fact is, if I say to you, Andrew, I've got this great, you know, offering this great opportunity you're probably, because you don't know the region or the area, you're probably going to look at all the numbers and probably try to do some additional research outside of what I share with you to see whether what I say is in fact the truth or if I've missed anything or if there's more, assuming you're interested, right? When we're talking to people who already know what the problems are, now it's, well, how am I, I want to be assured that I'm not going to lose my money because you're talking about people that I don't know. So it becomes much more of about like, who are you versus what is this opportunity? And so we are using technology to sort of strip away this whole, who are you? You don't, you can know me or you can know the folks who brought the opportunity to you, but because you're not handing me a check and because you're not talking, you know, you're not providing a lot of detail about your ability to invest to me directly because we're using a platform just the way any other 
serious investor would. If you're, you know, I don't want to drop any names of platforms, but if you're an accredited investor and you're doing private investing, you're not writing a check to somebody. For the most part, you're entering into a data room, you're looking at stuff, you know, you're interacting on a professional level. And so we wanted to bring that same experience. Why should we, why should we pull punches or, or have people have a less than experience just because we're targeting a different part of the world or a different group of people who, by the way, are not accredited. They're, they're sophisticated. And so that's another point is that some of the technology that's out there is not an option for us because we don't want to do crowdfunding for a whole host of reasons, not the least of which is a crazy cap table. You know, we wanted to get to people who were not gambling, who are smart enough, sophisticated. And when I say smart, I don't mean intelligence wise. I mean, able to look at documents that would go with an offering and discern what's there and talk to their attorneys and do their own research and so forth. So we wanted that person. We just wanted to remove the barrier that says, you know, you have to have, I think it's about a million dollars in net worth and, and take that off the table and, but still give you the same quality experience using technology. So today we're using technology to create what feels like an institutional grade limited partner experience versus yep. the one-off check writing of maybe an angel or maybe even worse down the line is the in a very, very small crowdfunding in which you get right. limited information about offering and you know you write such small check size that you're really not thinking about the return. So, I mean, this is a very broad-based question, but I was wondering what you think the world looks like today, like the current status you just described. And then more on that, if the network continues to grow the way it is, do you think it's a, a model that's replicable? And what does the world look like if so? I absolutely think it's replicable. I'm actually planning to have a conversation with a group of VCs that are trying to address equity, talking about this proposed model, because nothing that I'm doing is is a trade secret. The SEC allows for the stuff that we're doing. It's just that it's two things. And I, I don't want to sound you know like I'm speaking out of school here or, or out of turn, but the fact is a lot of the people who are in this space and raising money, their interest is not democratizing or any sort of social good type of thing. Their, their objective is to raise as much money as possible, as quickly as possible. And so the best way to accomplish that, given the rules are, you know, you're not going to do a public offering. You're, you're going to do a private placement of some sort and you're going to do 506B because you're going to get people who can write a hundred or $200,000 check. And that's great. But the fact of the matter is the rest of the world, and I put that in quotes, is not writing a $100,000 check. And even if they're sort of angel, they may not be what the definition is of an accredited investor. And let me talk about this for, for about 10 or 30 seconds, Andrew. The fact is, if you, whoever you are, check into reality, the fact is that most professional people have got big student loans. They have large mortgages. They have kids they're putting in school. And so even if they're making, they may also fall shy of the, I believe it's 200,000 as an individual. Maybe you're making 170. So now you have to fill out all these forms that attest to you being an accredited investor. And they're really, they're legal documents. So you're not going to lie about that stuff. If you are ready to invest, say you have 25 grand, say you have 50 grand that you want to put into you know, two or three 
or one or, you know, particularly strong investment. But you can't check the box that you're an accredited investor because you make 180 and not 200. Or you have when you when you put in your mortgage and your car and whatnot, you're at 600,000 in in net assets or net worth versus a million. So what? You don't get to invest? You're the best thing that that we have to offer you as an investment community is crowdfunding? What is that? Come on. <laughs> There's stuff in the middle. And I don't think that many people are interested in it because like I said, the folks who are raising want to do it quickly and with a, a small cap table. That's not my aim. My aim is to do it reasonably quickly, but it's also to offer people like me, the opportunity to have wealth without having to jump through, you know, 10 hoops that are unnecessary, by the way. Right. So you're finding that missing piece in between being a part of a big fund and writing personal checks and being a part of an ecosystem, even if you're right on the edge of being qualified. Right. Because most angel funds or angel activity, even if you go to the American, I forget what the actual name is, but the Angel Association for America, or even for Canada or wherever, they all say you have to be an accredited investor. So doesn't that sort of slam the door in the face of most professionals in this country? Absolutely. I think that student debt just did, from from my perspective, something like two and a half or $2.1 trillion. So we have have some pretty big bills coming into the rearview year here that would definitely discourage the amount of people that could be investing in a number of opportunities. One of the things that we have to address that I think might be kind of a, a trickier question is sourcing new opportunities. Say we can get people into, we can actually help people hit and fill in and color in kind of your vision for, for what the world looks like. And we include these people. Mm-hmm. How are you going about assisting on, I know a big piece of this is education in the areas in which you've mentioned already. And the fact that you've already been there and seen that some of these ideas kind of stay in this ecosystem of academia. Where and how do you go about sourcing new opportunities for this new pool of investors? And you know, maybe they have a somewhat unique and similar persona, but maybe they have a, a very different risk tolerance across different investments. So I think one thing we wouldn't relax is for sure, the level of sophistication of the investor. So I don't really, for me, I say we're really C-Dane and friends. So we are, it doesn't matter to me whether somebody's from the Caribbean or not in terms of participating. It just so happens that many of us are. In fact, we have a couple of people in the group who are not from the Caribbean. So the where you're from doesn't matter. What matters is that you, A, are a sophisticated investor and that there's a there's an actual classification for that. And Secondly, that you have an understanding of the quote unquote rest of the world. So if I were to, I'm making this up, bring you an opportunity or somebody in the in the group brought an opportunity from Burkina Faso, you can't cringe. You can, I mean, you can, you can say, I'm sitting this one out because I don't particularly think this is for me, this particular deal. But you're not going to be like, where is Burkina Faso? Right. And if you did say that, you'd go sort of figure it out before you nix your the opportunity. So this goes back to this concept of risk. Risk is not, to me, is not defined in the way of like, again, do we choose this electric car company versus the other? It is what problems are being solved that are affecting billions of people or certainly hundreds of millions of people. And and so for us, 
if you're solving for hundreds of millions of people or billions of people, it means you're going to places where those hundreds of millions of people or billions of people live. And I assure you, having traveled in a lot of places that other people are not interested in, there are people solving tremendous problems every day, everywhere. And so what we've done is we've decided to focus on a particular part of the world. We have a pipeline. Our problem is not pipeline. Our problem is absolutely not pipeline. I have so many high quality projects coming to us that have got not just like, oh, I have an idea. Like these are MVP, you know, proof of concept, box checked ideas. What we don't have is in some cases the time to evaluate and spend with all the founders, not evaluate, we evaluate them for sure, but some of them, they need a little bit of extra work and there's only so much time in the day and time in life to spend addressing these things. So we just pick the ones, as any investor would, that are going to solve the biggest problems and the people are nearly close to ready or are ready. Like we don't have to do a lot of work to get them to the place where, where they're investable. So there is a tremendous number of such opportunities all over the world. Because again, we're looking at ideas that are solving for the billions of people who are not needing another way to open their garage, right? Right. I have to say one of my biggest votes of confidence for the expansion of Cdane has got to be the combination of some of your skills. And I'll say what my perception of those skills are or is, but I would love to hear what you credit your growth and success to date with, which I'll just be very concise here. I think it's primarily a huge piece of your formal education background in economics, being able to see the world through that lens, the experience of travel and the uniqueness of your vantage point, as well as the ability that you've had to start not only private firms, but also work with different government agents. And to me, that means one of all the, all the great entrepreneurial being very hardworking and dedicated and all that, primarily communication. And I'm kind of curious to know if you feel like one of those stands out the most, but a big piece of this in my mind is just communicating the opportunities really effectively. And what I see you doing with CDAN feels like you're connecting dots and you're in the unique driver's seat to be able to explain to everyone, which is why I'm really excited to have you on the podcast, that it's not <laughs> only possible, that it's already happening, right? The tectonic plates are already moving together. It's just that people need to be aware of them. So you Absolutely. have this really unique vantage point to kind of piece all of this together. But kind of curious on what you think about that. Andrew, thank you. I really appreciate your compliments and I'm humbled by them. I'm humbled by your perspective of why, of me, of us, and why you think we are going to be able to move this thing forward. I have to say that it's two things and it's it's unfortunate. It's not one, any of the things you've mentioned though, but I, I do take what you're saying. It's, it's interesting because we, when we think about ourselves, we see ourselves differently than other people do very often, at least if you're somewhat humble. I think it's because I'm an immigrant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you come to a place, I don't care where you're from and I don't care where you're going. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your ethnicity is. When you and your whole family go from point place A to place B and you're coming not necessarily with nothing, but with different stuff and you have to get acclimated to that place where you've been like, I don't know anyone who wouldn't say who's an immigrant themselves, who wouldn't say that that is what drove because you have to hustle. 
it's the the hustle comes from coming from someplace else and having to to you know and wanting to to do stuff so what my family were not you know economic refugees to this day i'm not quite sure why my dad was like hey let's move to america but and he's passed so i can't ask him but but <laughs> but the point is i i think it's that and it's also that's the first thing and the second thing is i like people i really like people and I've had the most incredible good fortune to have amazing people befriend me, agree to be my friend, agree to help me, agree to listen to me. And so I have a team of people who are on CDANE and people who've helped launch the trust. I have, if you look at our website and you see the advisory team and you see the other team members who work in this organization, None of this would be possible without all of those people, because even if I had the will to keep doing whatever I was doing, I would be I would have been exhausted and I would have stopped if I had to do it all by myself. So I wouldn't and I didn't. So, yes, I would say the ability to communicate what the vision is and get because people don't want to be associated with things that are they perceive to be nonsense or not going to go anywhere or whatever, even if they go along with it because they like you. They'll get off the train eventually. And I think it's my immigrant hustle and passion, plus my ability to share with other people what the vision is somewhat effectively, plus other people's huge generosity, kindness, willingness to work for nothing <laughs> on the hope of, of something coming later is, is really what it's all about. I've been really lucky to have amazing people in my corner with all these projects. So. Those are the two things I think it is for me. That's awesome. Uh, I love that. I mean, okay, well, let's switch over. If you're all right with this, how about some some rapid fire? Okay, sure. So we're going to start off with greatest challenges that CDN's already overcome. I would say being able to get people to write checks. All right. And top of mind for you right now, and what do you think about coming into the next 12 months? Top of mind for me is bringing more people into the network. So we have, we're all women, by the way. I didn't say that, but we're all just an amazing group of women, some of whom I knew before I started this, others, not not even a little bit, didn't know them from a can of paint. And we want to get more folks involved. And so, you know, we want to make sure we do that in a way that nobody gets upset, like the authorities. We're not selling anything. We just, we're trying to create a community. So the next 12 months for me, I think is about getting more people to hear this story because I don't know if you know this, but I believe according to the most recent data I looked at, there are 14 million people in the U.S. who are immigrants from the Caribbean. So that doesn't include first and second generation who very much would culturally associate with the Caribbean. And so we want to get those folks engaged. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of purchasing power. Absolutely. All right. Most exciting thing you're looking forward to in the next three to five years, just broadening out this timeline a little bit? It is absolutely without question is bringing resources. And I don't just mean money. I mean, you know, intellect, experience, everything else to bring the products that are part of the, you know, the companies that we have in the fold to really have them build some blockbuster They're already building blockbuster products, but to really create wealth, like to have them get acquired or, you know, gangbusters in sales and just stay private or whatever. We're not really looking at IPOs and things like that, although certainly that could happen. But the vast majority of of companies that 
have exits are acquired. And so that's what we want to do. We want to have a couple of more than a couple, but a few exits in the next five years that really create wealth for the community of investors that make up seeding. What's a piece of advice you've learned in maybe the last five years or through an entrepreneurial venture that you'd give to an aspiring entrepreneur or maybe somebody who's in their early days of building a new firm? It's one word, Andrew, and that's listen. We have people that we work with who don't listen. Those are the folks that we don't take forward. So as I mentioned, all of this kind of started from this innovation prize that we run program. It's a, it's a one-year program and it's serious. And we find sometimes, which is very often the case, it's not particular to us, the entrepreneur is so attached to whatever that they're not listening. So the biggest piece of advice that I would that I took myself, I am a listener, by the way. I listen sometimes out of nothing but respect, even if I don't agree. People need to learn how to listen. Absolutely. Okay. So you've got a really unique vantage point. We've covered that you've worked, you've got a a really incredible education background and you've worked with governments and you've started companies and you've got new networks going. And I know you know this question's already coming because I ask it every podcast, but what do you think is most underestimated in the world? It doesn't have to be about anything we talked about. It could be a trend, a technology. What's just one thing that you think that the world just hasn't quite caught up to yet? Funnily enough, it it doesn't have to do with our work. I think the thing that people haven't caught up to is the impact of COVID on education, on the readiness of young people for the next stage in life. I think, you know, I used to run a charter school and I've been in education for some time, either as uh, not as not as an educator, as an administrator or someone who ran programs or whatever. And what I'm not sure we've processed is what happens, which we saw when you're in a school environment, what happens when kids miss school. I'm not talking like a few months. The loss that happens, happens every summer. So imagine multiplying that a summer's two months. Imagine multiplying that by like eight, (laughs) right? So we are going to have some serious problems as the world. We're not even just talking about the U.S. Based on the fact that so many young people have been out of school because homeschooling is not real school. Most parents are not equipped to teach. They don't have the physical equipment. They don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the training. They're just, they're sending their kids to school. They, they in some cases, didn't finish school. And for those who, and let's, let's not make this about economics. There are lots of people who aren't doing a great job homeschooling their kids because they have very demanding jobs. Right. They're professional people. And, you know, the kids talking about, you know, algebra, like seriously. So, yeah, there's going to be a big, 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 big impact on our world as a result of that, that I don't think enough people are thinking about and certainly don't have any solutions for. So where I think the next thing is going to be is those companies, those solutions that are going to come in and address that. And it doesn't always have to be about some new app. There are lots of ways to solve things that do not involve apps, but they are about forming company to figure out a way to address it and make money doing so. So I think to me, that's that's like a very, very big thing. Well, with the with great problems creates great entrepreneurial 
opportunity. So we never know. Maybe maybe it'll come. Maybe some of these solutions will come from Cdane, which I, I would love to see. Oslin, where can people find out more about Cdane and GEDT? Sure. For GEDT, I encourage people to go to innovateguyana.org. That's innovate. Guyana is G-U-Y-A-N-A, one word, innovateguyana.org. And as far as Cdane, we are at Diaspora Investor Network. I'm not going to try to spell all that, but it's one word, diasporainvestornetwork.org. Excellent. Asleen, thank you so much. This has been so fun for me, and I'm sure for all of our listeners as well. They're really going to enjoy this episode. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. This was fun. I'd love to come back when we have more to share. Absolutely. Everyone, this has been the Modern CFO Podcast. If you have a moment, please subscribe and leave a comment. It really does help. And I'm looking forward to the next time I get to speak with Osleen. Thanks so much again. <laughs>